0: Well good morning. I uh, just want to say welcome to everyone here this morning and those who are online. Uh, I'm Stephen, one of the pastors here. And uh, I just want to say, you know, if you ever have a question or you're wondering about something, me and Pastor Tamil would love to talk with you. So if you ever hear something like, man, I don't know if I agree with Stephen or Tamil said something really weird, you know, <laughs> feel free to talk to us. We are open books and we'd love to engage with you. Um Recently, we had a lot of baptisms, and we've had a lot of members, and we've seen a lot of growth in our church, and that's something to be really excited about. Now, I'm not sure about you, but who here has ever gone through maybe a bit of a growth spurt? You know, just a little bit, maybe, Yeah. <laughs> Maybe, you know, you're going to school and, you know, you remember maybe when you're a teenager and one summer your friend who's short, all of a sudden the next summer is like six inches taller and you're like, what did you take? What was in your food? Um, And one thing, though, sometimes is when we grow quickly, sometimes things can become unstable or sometimes there's pruning that needs to happen just with a bush or a tree in a yard that grows really quickly. And, you know, for me, I remember one time, I was, I think it was around grade nine, I think it was grade nine or grade eight, and what happened was um, I had grown a bit, and you know, I, had, I was mostly coordinated for the most part because I played sports, but I remember one time I was walking down the hallway with my classmates, we were going to another class, and I tripped and I smashed my head into uh, like a steel reinforced window, one of those windows with the steel wires in them, and I shattered the window. <laughs> And the thing is, I got right back up and I didn't feel a thing. And so then they're like, he's a giant, he's invincible. So that wasn't, uh, that was kind of embarrassing. But I mean, growth causes those issues and they're not, they're not bad issues, but sometimes we need to prune and we need to think and we need to ground ourselves. And um, and so I just kind of want to ground ourselves in what does it mean for us to be evergreen? What does it mean for us to be a church? And as we kind of mentioned and talked about, is that we kind of come from an Anabaptist background. And so what, is, what does exactly that mean? One very central core, I would say, for Anabaptists is this idea of peacemaking. This idea that we desire to be at peace with others, that we make peace. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you feel our society cares about peace? I feel like our is opposite. That things have become polarized. It seems like every issue is going to be the end of our society. Whether you watch the news or on YouTube, there's all these kind of commentators going back and forth, trying to rile people up. Maybe you felt afraid, afraid to state your opinion because you feel like you're maybe somewhere in the middle and you don't really fit one side or the other. Maybe you feel trapped by a world that seems to be tearing itself apart. Or maybe you're the other person, like I have been in my past, very dogmatic, very straightforward, very black and white. And if anyone disagrees with you on the topic, they're wrong and you're right. It's very easy to feel superior to others in our opinions. Very easy to become self-righteous, self-important. And I can say that because I was that person and sometimes I still am that person. That's something I have to allow Christ to work in me. It's easy to become polarized, tribalistic. I mean, think about even going to the washroom. Some people with toilet papers, like, does the toilet paper will go up or does it go down? And, like, you know, that can turn into a fight between a spouse. Uh, you know, like, they can get into an argument over the smallest of things. It's so easy to engage in kind of attacking one another and wanting to be right. And how do we operate in this world that seems to encourage that way of living, of taking sides so easily and not seeing the humanity in the other side. It's so easy when we get passionate about an issue, whatever it is, and then every other person who doesn't agree with me, well, they're just crazy and they're just wrong. And I think our world is wanting us to be at war with one another. I think a central aspect that Jesus wants us to be is to be people of peace. He offers us the way of peace. We are called to be people of grace and peace. We are called to be peacemakers, people who walk in the way of love, people who walk in the way of peace. And this is a central Anabaptist core belief. This morning we're going to be going to Matthew five thirty-eight to forty-four. So if you've got a phone, you can turn there, or a Bible, please turn there. And you might ask me, well, what exactly do you mean by peacemaking? Well, I'm going to read a small section from our actual The Mennonite Brethren Confession of Faith on what Christian peacemaking is. This is what it says. Christian peacemaking believers seek to be agents of reconciliation in all relationships, to practice love of enemies as taught by Christ, to be peacemakers in all situations. We view violence in its many different forms as contradictory to the new nature of the Christian. We believe that evil And inhumane nature of violence is contrary to the gospel of love and peace, end quote. Sometimes Anabaptists historically have been known as pacifists, and this is true. Many Anabaptists throughout the years have not participated in wars or have been medics or um, served in non-combatant roles, but we're called to go beyond just pacifism. We're actually called to be peacemakers. So how do we be people of peace? Let's pray before we open the scriptures. Father, we thank you that you are a father who desires to bring peace. Help me to speak wisely, to bring glory to you, to feed your church. Help me to speak and to expound your scriptures well. Jesus, shape us into your image. This isn't easy to be people of peace. Holy Spirit, come. We welcome you here. Cleanse us, mold us, purify us into the image of your son. Help us to be your church that you desire. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be reading from Matthew 5, 38 to 44. This is Jesus speaking. Verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also, As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. But you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This call to be people of peace, like Jesus, is difficult. This is an extremely challenging passage. I did not like studying this passage, being completely honest. It hit at my core. And it's actually very interesting as I was reading commentaries and I was thinking about this passage, um, there was a lot of actually really good commentators that I well respect, that say that Jesus is using extreme language here to kind of get across a point. That Jesus is being hyperbolic which I think is true to an extent. But if I think about the life of Jesus, is this really hyperbolic? Is this really extreme language? I'm not so sure. This passage makes me uncomfortable. It challenges me. I'm not sure if I could emulate Jesus this way, and I think it's almost impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit. To be people of grace, to be people of peace, requires that we are willing to suspend our rights to not seek vengeance. First point this morning is Jesus challenges us. His way of peace challenges our right to vengeance. Matthew 5, 38-39, You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. Here Jesus quotes a rule of law, a tooth for a tooth, an eye for an eye. And this is very common in the ancient world. In the law of Leviticus, if someone were to do something to you, you could seek recompense under the law. They would have to pay you basically what was equal. And this was also in the law of Hammurabi. This is very common in the ancient world. This idea of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And in some way, this law was good because it would limit vengeance. Because if you didn't have law and you were all of a sudden attacked, your honor was kind of broached, then you would want to take revenge. You had to get your honor back. They lived in a world that was very shame and honor culture. And so the law did help this. It helped a way, though, that you could still get vengeance. But yet, here Jesus says something do not resist the evildoer. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him, the other one also don't I get my vengeance, Jesus? Don't I get my pound of flesh? This striking comment by Jesus, no pun intended, even though I'm a new father, in the Greco-Roman world, this actually meant a vile insult. It wasn't necessarily a punch to the face when Jesus slapped slap to the cheek. This was often kind of a, a phrase used for someone said something really vile, something really kind of like slanderous behind the back, maybe even to your face. And you could seek damages for that. And imagine being called the most vilest thing today and not choosing to take offense. This would, I think, be absurd to us today to not take offense, and even more so then. The point is we're not to seek vengeance. Our personal rights are not what is important to Jesus. And there are so obsessed with honor and shame. And Jesus says, don't take offense when you're wronged. Don't take vengeance. But Lord, I desire justice. They did me wrong. And it's not wrong to desire justice. I'm not saying don't desire justice. But the focal point is that Jesus desires to turn an enemy into a friend. How often do we turn enemies into friends by taking offense? What does this do? When we want justice, what is at the heart? It's often, I want to be seen as right. I want to be seen as justified. I'm not sure about you, but even with my wife, sometimes it's like, I want to be the right one in the argument. I want to be, oh, I was right. You were wrong. But that's the thing. It's not the heart of Jesus at all. It's just me being self-righteous, me wanting my own way. And with this said, I'm not saying that we don't seek justice for the oppressed or the marginalized. We see Jesus doing this throughout the gospel, seeking justice for those who are marginalized or oppressed. But when it came to Jesus's own rights, What did he do? He was spat upon. He was slandered. He allowed his own honor to be crushed. Are we willing to embrace shame and suffering? I mean, the cross is the very kind of the epitome of shame and suffering in that culture. To bear the cross, Jesus was the center of shame. To be hung on a cross was seen as extremely shameful. And yet Jesus takes up that way of the cross to bring peace and redemption. And the thing is, Jesus calls us to pick up our crosses. I remember when I was a pastor 10 years ago, I faced gossip and lies from someone who was uh, closely connected to me uh, through a relationship. And I remember just being so frustrated. Why is this person lying about me? Why are they saying things that are untrue? And I remember being confused, I was trying to fix the situation, I was trying to meet with the person because you know that's what scripture commands us to do. And they they didn't want to meet and they kept on just saying the things that they said, and eventually I became very bitter. I became very angry. I felt like I was in the right. And perhaps so, but what good would that do? And even worse, there was someone in a position of authority who could have actually done something about the situation. They could have spoken up. They could have brought correction, but they didn't. And that made me angry. And I became bitter. And I nursed a grudge for two years. Peace did not come. I wonder if I was willing to not take offense. If I was willing to lay down my rights, even though perhaps I was right, perhaps this person was lying and saying things that are untrue, But perhaps if I embraced the way of peace, maybe that grudge would have never been there. And maybe God's kingdom could have come. Maybe his peace could have come in that situation. But I wasn't willing to follow the radical way of Jesus. I wanted justice. I wanted to be seen as right. Jesus' way of laying down his rights is a high price but it's the way which brings us peace. It's not easy. Second, Jesus' way of peace demands generosity. Jesus' way of peace demands generosity. Matthew 5, 40 to 42. As for the one who wants to see you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and turn, don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. When I heard this verse as a teenager, I thought, this is a bit extreme. Jesus, like, they're just asking you for your shirt, and then you're supposed to give them your coat. Uh, like, no, I'll <laughs> give them maybe nothing. But <laughs> it's true. I mean, someone's asking for something, you're not going to give it to them, most likely. But in the ancient world, this is actually way more radical In most people's day, people didn't have wealth. You didn't have like 10 changes of clothes. You would maybe have only one outer garment or cloak. And if you were poor, which a lot of people were, there was a high chance you just had one cloak. And you would use that cloak for bedding. You would use it to sleep on. And so Jesus is saying, give up your cloak. I can only imagine the hearers listening to Jesus thinking, Jesus, you're nuts. You would be furious if someone asked you for your coat. Yet Jesus is telling not to hold on to these possessions. He's challenging our right to physical possessions and perhaps even our bare necessities. This passage is uncomfortable. And then Jesus says, if someone forces you to go a mile, you're supposed to go two miles with them. Jesus, what are you saying? What kind of people are we that we get taken advantage of so easily? And Jesus here, when he talks about going the two miles, this is actually a reference to Roman soldiers. Roman soldiers had the right to take a Jewish citizen and to make them walk a mile carrying their equipment for them. So can you only imagine when Jesus says, be willing to go two miles to carry their equipment Lord, you're telling me you want us to carry our Roman oppressor's equipment? You're telling us you want us to serve these people that have us, that have conquered us, that look, up, look at us as lowly people? And you're telling us to serve them well? We despise them. Lord, how can we carry their equipment, their very equipment, maybe their swords or shields that they use to oppress us? And you're telling us to serve them? I can only imagine the thoughts in the people of the time. I'll be honest, I struggle with just loving my family members sometimes. You know, like I love my son Noah, but when he's got the poopy diaper and he's screaming at two in the morning, love is not flowing through my veins. I'm like, ah, oh, like this is crazy. I love him, but it's tough, you know, like cleaning a poopy diaper. But then like Jesus is saying like, I'm supposed to help someone who's oppressing me? I'm supposed to serve them? My son isn't oppressing me with his dirty diaper. It may be smelly, but it's not oppression. You know, call to this generous way of life. And I think this is where peace begins. We begin to make enemies into friends. We may not be under for foreign rule from another nation. You know, it's hard to put ourselves into Jewish people in the first century, their shoes— but maybe think of someone you consider an enemy. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's an ex-wife or ex-husband. Maybe it's a father or mother. Maybe you were abused. Maybe it's someone who stole from you, a former business partner, an employee, maybe a boss. What does it look like to serve that person? And this is where I think the rubber begins to meet the road. This is when the call of Jesus begins to get uncomfortable. I'm not saying let someone just continue to abuse you, but maybe ask Jesus, what would it mean for me to serve that person? What would it mean for me to be a person of peace? Third point this morning, Jesus challenges our love. Jesus challenges our love. Matthew five forty three to 44. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We're called to be people of peace, not revenge, not people who hold on to things, not people who hold on to offense. We're called to the radical way of love. Isn't the first verse the way that we operate today? Love your friends, hate your enemies. Look how easy it is for people to attack one another, to take things out of context, to say, you said this, you said that. Or how easy it is for us to just assume the worst of others. I'm so good at that, assuming the worst of others. My wife could tell you when I was <laughs> growing up, she was like, oh, that person said this. And I just would assume the worst instead of assuming the best. But we're called to love our enemy. How easy it is for us to dismiss others. How easy it is for us to hate others, to look at them and disdain Maybe we might say that person's woke or that person's conservative or that person's liberal, that person's far left, far right, or that person's Muslim or LGBTQ plus. Whatever box you want to put that name in that person or that people group that you don't like, Jesus is calling us to love those people and to serve them. That is difficult. I don't know who it is for you. But you might say, well, they're against us, or they're against me, or they've hurt me. And that may be true. But do you think this command is any different for us? If Jesus commands Jewish people who are being oppressed to love these other people to serve them, can we do any less? It's uncomfortable. Rome crucified thousands of Jews. I can only imagine the hate for a Roman that Jewish people would have had. Rome attacked them Rome controlled them Rome oppressed them yet Jesus words resound as a direct challenge to the way of self-sacrifice instead of the sword we are called to peace to be peacemakers and I'm not saying that I'm good at it or that it's easy but that's what he's calling us to and is this not what Jesus did for us Is this not part of the very gospel that we were estranged, we were slaves to sin, we were enemies of God? Romans 5, verses 8 to 11. But God proves his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more than since now we have been justified by his blood will be saved through him from wrath. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more having been reconciled will be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we now have this received this reconciliation. We're called to follow Jesus. It's not easy. We're called to follow in the way of the cross. Is this passage hyperbole? I'm not so sure. Did not Jesus receive insults on the cross? Was not his very cloak, his tunic stripped from him? When he was crucified, when he carried the cross, he carried every, he gave everything, and he loved those who considered him an enemy. I'm not so sure that this passage is hyperbole, but I'll leave you to think about that. We're called to the way of peace, to be peacemakers. I want to end this sermon with a a famous story, an Anabaptist story. The worship leaders can come up, our worship team. There was a man named Dirk Williams. That's a picture of him. Or not a picture, but a a drawing you can see of him. Dirk Williams was an early Anabaptist. He was a Dutch man who lived during the 16th century. And to be an Anabaptist at this time was a very dangerous thing. The reason being is Anabaptists believed that you should only be baptized once you can make a decision for Christ. And because of this, often they were killed in mass by Catholics Uh, Calvinists and Lutherans. Um, And so this was not a very, (laughs) this was a very risky situation. And part of the reason being is because during that time, when you were baptized, whether you're Catholic or Lutheran or Calvinist, the state would give you your civic rights, would give you your citizenship. And so all of a sudden, these Anabaptists, they're getting baptized as adults. And so the state and the church saw this as a threat. But the, but the Anabaptists did this because they believed they're trying to follow Jesus to the best of their ability. So, William chose to be baptized as an adult, and he would hold Bible studies at his house, and he would do baptisms, and we're actually unsure of how he was found out. But during this time, Anabaptists were known for being like Jesus. Anabaptists during the Reformation were known for being people of love, people of generosity people who did not lie, who did not cheat, people who cared for others. And so actually what would happen in towns is those people would be suspected of Anabaptists. If you were someone who lived well and was generous and kind and didn't cheat, they would sometimes send people to spy on you because they thought, well, maybe this person's an Anabaptist. And then he was, he was found out. And so what happened was Williams was put into prison. Williams was put into prison one day and he was in prison for a while. It was during the winter and he made a rope knotted rags in prison, and used this kind of this makeshift rope to escape out of the prison to climb out. And as he began his escape, it was winter, and uh, so like there was a moat around the prison, and he began to run on the ice. There was a guard that saw him. What do guards do when they see a prisoner escape? They give chase. And Willems, because he had been in the prison a while and had been on prison rations, he was rather skinny, so he didn't fall through the ice. But what happened was, as he was running on the ice, the guard, because he's not on prison rations, he falls in the ice and he begins to cry for help. And what does Willems do? Willems turns around and rescues the guard who is drowning from the ice. Willems was willing to be recaptured for the life of that man. And once recaptured, Willems was urged to give up his Anabaptist police. Willem wouldn't recant. And so they burned Willem at the stake. He was willing to give up his life to save a guard who would put him back in prison and he would know that he would eventually die because many Anabaptists were being killed at this time. Willems, as an Anabaptist, answered the call of Jesus to love your enemies, to be willing to give up your life for another. He was not only willing to give up his cloak to be slapped or to go the extra mile, but giving up his life. This is the radical way of Jesus, the radical way of peace. It's not easy. I'm not sure if this passage is hyperbole. I I think it's probably more true than we would like to think. Let's pray. Father, we are called to the way of peace in a time where things are so divided. Help us to be people of peace of your presence, people that bring reconciliation between groups that are in conflict and are at war. Help us to be your presence, to be your body to others, Father. I thank you, Father, in your name. Amen.